Good evening to you. How are you doing? Hope you had a nice weekend. It's Monday. It is the 7th of February 2022. It's myself, Richie Allen, going to be with you as always until 7 o'clock. Ah, looking forward to this programme. Do drop me a message through the website, richieallen.co.uk. A comment, a message, you decide. Welcome. Uncensored. Unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Now, Jenny Lowe's is a brilliant woman. She really is brilliant. She is a very, very experienced nurse. She's working in private practice these days in Portugal, but she's worked for the NHS for many years, recruiting nurses for the NHS, educating nurses. Uh, As I said, a top, top lady. Welcoming her back to the programme today because I want to talk about how 90 to 95% of the things that are treated by health services are in fact preventable but yet health services don't focus on the preventative side of things we'll talk about that and more with Jenny Lowe's in the second hour in fact it'll be very interesting to get Jenny's take on the UK government dropping the vaccine mandate for NHS workers because we spoke about that in the past before that a great friend of mine welcome back to the programme it's been over a year I believe since he was on no rhyme or reason for that Spiro Skouras joins us live from Arizona you'll find him on activistpost.com you'll find him on Twitter you'll find his YouTube channel where else but on YouTube he's a great guy great broadcaster and a very shrewd journalist always very well briefed Spiro we'll talk Freedom Convoy and much more with uh, my old pal this hour that's Monday's Richie Allen show presented by me Richie Allen live from Salford and it's well, yeah, it's a busy old day, this. Do you know, I, I got up this morning and I thought, it's going to be same old, same old Richie. Because last week, I enjoyed last week's shows, but it was a bit of a struggle, really. There wasn't a lot of exciting new stuff happening. And I thought, it's going, going to be another week like that. But some interesting things happening today. Cancel culture is all the rage today in the news. Jokes, bad jokes, distasteful jokes, jokes that should never be heard. Is there such a thing as a joke which should never be said or never be heard? Should somebody be cancelled? Should somebody be disowned, exiled because of a gag? The Health Secretary Sajid Javid, well, he wants the public to cancel the comedian Jimmy Carr over something Jimmy Carr said in a Netflix television special which was broadcast originally just before Christmas. We'll come to that in a minute. I went looking through... The, the, the darkest recesses of my brain to remember some of the more risque gags that I was told over the years and that I'm going to be the first to admit it that I would have repeated and I came up with a couple I mean I've been around blokes my entire life and blokes tell silly gags why can't an orphan be gay? well because they don't have anyone to call daddy Now, that's not too offensive, right? Let's move on. I was in Saudi Arabia a few years ago on holiday in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. And we had a few beers. It was a special hotel for Westerners. And we had too many beers. And the oft-mentioned future Mrs. Allen said she was leaving me. So I was depressed. 
and I called a local suicide hotline there and they got really excited and they asked me if I could fly a plane. Yeah, well, that's all right. Uh, What's the worst thing about breaking up with a Japanese girl? Well, you have to drop the bomb twice before she gets the message. That's getting close to the line. Um, A young lad was standing on top of a cliff looking down and bawling his eyes out. And a priest happened to be walking past and he approached the kid and he said, Why are you crying, my son? And the kid said, Well, me parents just crashed the car off the cliff and died. Well, it's just not your day today, son, is it? Said the priest as he unbuttoned his trousers. You see, that? that's absolutely disgraceful. That's the line right there. Now, those jokes are awful, right? Tasteless. Jimmy Carr is under the cosh because of a gag he told. And at the weekend at a, at a show he did at the weekend, he criticised cancel culture and he said that, um, well, it's going to be the end of comedy, basically. Comedy is dying. He's come under fire over a joke he told in his latest Netflix special called His Dark Materials. Do you want to hear the gag from Jimmy Carr himself? Asher, go on. You might as well hear it before saying it's, well, it's unsayable. Right, this, this should be a career end. Okay, strap in, everyone. You ready? When people talk about the Holocaust... When people talk about the Holocaust, they talk about the tragedy and horror of six million Jewish lives being lost to the Nazi war machine. But they never mention the thousands of gypsies that were killed by the Nazis. No one ever wants to talk about that because no one ever wants to talk about the positives. (laughs) That's a very good joke for the following three reasons. Firstly, fucking funny. Well done, mate. Secondly, edgy. Edgy is all hell. It's a joke about the worst thing that's ever happened in human history. And people say, never forget. Well, this is how I remember. I keep bringing it up. (laughs) Third reason that's a good joke is because there is an educational quality. Like, everyone in the room knows six million Jewish people lost their lives to the Nazis during World War II. But a lot of people don't know, because it's not really taught in our schools, that the Nazis also killed, in their thousands, gypsies, homosexuals, disabled people, and Jehovah's Witnesses. No-one knows what happened with the Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> You'd have to assume some Jehovah's Witnesses came a-knocking on the gates of a death camp. Right, so that's the gag. That is the gag told by Jimmy Carr. So on Saturday, at a gig somewhere in the UK, he said, the joke that ends my career is already out there. He was heckled, apparently, about the Holocaust by someone in the audience. And then he stood there and he said, we're going to talk about cancel culture, the whole thing. And then he said, in 10 years, forget about it. What I am saying on this stage this evening is barely acceptable now. In 10 years, forget about it. You will be able to tell your grandchildren about seeing this show tonight. You will say, I saw a man and he stood on a stage and he made light of serious issues. We used to call them jokes and people would laugh. He went on to say that he was highlighting the lack of knowledge of the Nazis' murder of gypsies. And in, you heard the entire clip there. The media has been playing the bit right up to the point where he says, basically, that they don't mention the positives. But he went on to kind of contextualise it, didn't he? By talking about the fact people don't know too much about the gypsies. Uh, comedian Leo Kearse was on talk radio with Julia Hartley Brewer. Leo Kearse is the guy's name. Yes, of course we should be allowed to tell that joke. I mean, it's, it, 
it clearly works as a joke. People ask, where do we draw the line in comedy? But we draw the line where people stop laughing. You don't need to regulate comedy. We perform in front of a jury. There's an audience. You go out, go out in a comedy club, there's 200 people sitting there. They're, they're from across society. Uh, it's not a Nazi rally. So if you say if you say something that's genuinely hateful or intolerant, uh, they're not going to laugh. If he'd come out and just you know said some sort of blank statement of of hate against gypsies, like people people wouldn't have laughed. He obviously doesn't mean it. It's obviously a joke. It's I mean, obviously to, me, to me, to me, it was very obvious that Jimmy Carr is not making light of the Holocaust. He's very obviously yeah. not making light of the murder of the Roma community by the Nazis. The, to me, maybe I'm not getting it right, to me, the, the joke is him saying something sort of almost along the lines of basically, that you know, he's, he's almost, he's mocking, he's horrified by the people who aren't horrified by that. He, he's, it's sort of doubling back on itself. Um, isn't this the issue is that a lot of people who are who take offence, and, 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 you know, the Roma community have spoken up and want this uh, censored. Um, indeed, representatives of the Jewish community, um, the Holocaust Memorial Trust and others have, have said they, they, they find this unacceptable. Um, These but, are all organisations famous for their sense of humour, of course. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, I mean, well said. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, I mean, it seems ridiculous. To, it's it's in a, a comedy special. It's going to be seen in the context of a comedy show. He didn't just pop up on Memorial Day. He didn't yeah. pop up at somebody's funeral and yeah. say it. He he said it in the context of a comedy show. And they, they've che they've cherry picked this this one line, which, as you say, has been around for a for a month. The Netflix special yeah. came out on the twenty fifth of December last year. Uh, was. Completely without incident, being watched by millions of people, and uh, then one one of the offended woke brigades saw this clip, realised they could they had an opportunity to cause some hysteria, circulated it on Twitter, where other people saw an opportunity to to get offended. It uh, seems to be a, a national sport now. Yeah, it's a bit more serious than it being a national sport. There, I wrote about this on my website today because it occurred to me that we've always made jokes about things about disasters the Holocaust not being a disaster, obviously it's genocide. But um, we've always made gags about things that happened. I remember being in school, in primary school, and yeah, in primary school, and people making jokes at the expense of Ethiopian people. Because obviously, in the 1980s, we had the famine in Ethiopia. Now I know it's a lot more complicated than just the famine, but we had the famine and we had all of these, we had all of these news reports constantly with terrible images of very emaciated-looking babies, often covered in flies, in camps which were overcrowded, dreadful stuff. And I often wonder about that. You know, what, what, what impact that would have had on people watching it. it. It would have been almost, I don't know, surreal to people watching that stuff in Ireland and England, knowing that well, there's very little you can do about it. Wondering what are you supposed to do about it. It's just a, a bizarre, almost farcical situation. And often to cope with those kinds of feelings, I think, people would laugh at stuff. You know, I, I told a story on the website today, it's totally true. I won't name the chap, I might name him, uh, but an old friend of mine, someone I'm still in touch with from time to time, made a joke many years ago when I was in secondary school that I found hilariously funny. It wasn't funny. What happened wasn't funny, but the joke was funny. You'll remember the Armenian earthquake where tens of thousands of people died and... I, I think half a million homes were destroyed. Nothing funny about that if you're in the middle of it. But I remember a friend of mine in school banging on the on the the, the, the tarmac in the playground and, and asking me, what's this? 
I said, I don't know what, what, what you mean, what's this, what? And he said, it's a door-to-door salesman in Armenia. I, I laughed at that. Um, now, the earthquake was senseless, right? You couldn't make any sense of it. You, you couldn't relate to it. As, as an Irish person, as a kid, this stuff you see on television. And I don't know if making these silly gags or repeating them has something to do with the fact that you can't make head or tail of horrific stories like that. And also, what you're supposed to think about it. That's the thing, isn't it? Blanket, round-the-clock coverage on, on the, your national news network. And on, on some level, you must be wondering, well, what the hell is going on? What am I supposed to do? Maybe there's some mortality thing going on there where you become acutely aware of your own mortality. I don't know. These childish gags. I've always found them funny. And I, I, I don't know. And, and then people say, well, you know, white guys, white kind of... I get accused of being white middle class. I'm not middle class. There is no such thing as class, but I'd be working class if there was. You know that it's easy for you. Jokes are usually at the expense of everybody but uh, white people. But that's not true either. Yeah. I remember hearing a joke in a pub years ago and there was an eruption of outrage after the joke was told. It was around about the time that Paul McCartney got divorced from Heather Mills who was then Heather Mills McCartney, remember? He got divorced from her. And as far as I remember, she took millions and millions of of pounds of his money, maybe 60 million quid. And it was a guy in this pub told this gag, and it knocked me off my stool. I thought it was so funny. But there were lots of people there outraged about it on behalf of somebody they didn't know and who probably couldn't give a shit about the joke. Um, some bloke said, um, he says, uh, Paul McCartney wasn't, I've got to remember how he said this, Paul McCartney wasn't the least bit bitter that Heather Mills took 60 million quid of his money. Not the least bit bitter at all. Every Christmas, he sends her a bunch of flowers and a tin of cupernol. <laughs> a tin of cupernol. Now, cupernol is wood stain. It's wood stain. Because Heather Mills was is an amputee. I think she lost one of her legs in, in a motorbike accident. Obviously her leg isn't wooden, but that's what makes it even funnier. It's probably titanium or something. I remember people saying, oh, it's, it's offensive to amputees, but how could it be? Hate speech. Hate speech. Can't say stuff like that. But you know, as long as I'm still able to do this radio programme, I, I can say whatever I want. As long as you're not deliberately setting out to hurt people, I think you should be able to say whatever you want. And even still... If you're deliberately setting out to hurt people by that which you say, surely there should be, you should be allowed to do that. It might make you an arsehole, but then maybe the majority of people will just look upon you as an arsehole. If you're setting out to deliberately hurt people's feelings by the things you say. Anyway. Uh, the UK is often down the league, Cupernal, I love it. Uh, the UK is often down the league tables. Whatever is being measured, whatever is being discussed, the UK down the league tables, whether it's healthcare, whether it's sporting achievements, whether it's quality of life, hospital waiting lists. Um, the UK is often not a world leader, or so we're told, in anything. Now, Natasha Devon presents a radio show at the weekends for LBC Radio, which is in Leicester Square in London. Now, Natasha is a woman of colour and she's a lesbian. Imagine what Bernard Manning would have said if he'd encountered Natasha at one of his gigs. Anyway, a woman of colour and a lesbian uh, presents this programme at weekends, Natasha. The UK is number one 
It's leading the world, but in what? Did you know that outside the UK, we are known as the transphobia capital of the world? We're often referred to as Turf Island. Turf, of course, stands for trans-exclusionary radical feminist because we lead the charge globally on demonising and misrepresenting trans people. That's not a record we can be proud of, is it? It is. It is a record we can be proud of. And by the way, nobody demonises or misrepresents trans people in the UK. That's total bollocks. Number one. Anyway... Go on, Natasha. Reforms to the Gender Recognition Act, for example, which have happened in 14 countries throughout the world, several American states, and were promised by Theresa May for England, will actually just mean, these are what the the changes, the proposed changes to the Gender Recognition Act would mean, that it's easier for trans people to be listed as their true gender on their death and marriage certificates. Trans people can already have their true gender on their passport and driving licence. That's literally all it would mean. But for some reason, this was turned in the media into a debate about women's spaces. The Gender Recognition Act had nothing to do with women's spaces. It has been the fact for a very long time that a trans person can go into a toilet which is for their chosen gender or for their true gender. No, she said it right first time. That was a slip of the tongue there, slip of the tongue there, of their chosen gender she says. And that's what gives it away as monumental bollocks. Chosen gender. Biological sex is all that matters. I have no interest in gender. I know there will be people listening to this, they are far more learned than I and know more about the constructs around gender and gender identity than maybe I do. Hayden Hewitt, my pal, has invested quite a lot of time in recent years researching this stuff. I've no time for gender. Yeah, male, female, yeah. Biological sex is all that matters. That's all that matters. And as far as I'm concerned, gender, or the notion of it, is nonsense. That's just my opinion for what it's worth. Let's hear more from, from Natasha Devon. You have definitely peed next to a trans person in your life. What? And you didn't even know about it. What was that? What was that? What was that, I said? You have definitely peed next to a trans person in your life and you didn't even know about it. Wow. I got peed on by a trans person once, but that was that was some weekend, eh, eh? Stag do in Amsterdam. <laughs> Best forgotten. That was a kind of a I know what you did last summer kind of a thing. I'm still getting anonymous texts from somebody. I know what you did with the tranny in Amsterdam last summer. Um, She doesn't like women's rights organisations either. We've started to see all of these apparently women's rights organisations popping up all over the place, which strangely never talk about women's rights in any other context than where there is this kind of false tension between cisgender women's rights and transgender rights. That's the only time they want to talk about women's rights. There's no such thing as a cisgender woman, by the way. They don't talk about women's safety in any any other context. Well, they do. They're always talking about women's safety. This is a lie, you see. This is gaslighting by the media. This woman is saying that that real women, there's only one type of real woman, really, that real women never talk about women's rights or safety outside of having a go at trans people. That's bullshit. Women have been engaging in conversations around safety from men... Uh, women have been talking about the 
the, the dangers of walking the streets only in recent months because of the attack and, and, and murder of a woman by a policeman. So it's nonsense to say that women only talk about women's rights when it's to have a go at a trans person. That's not true. Other than when it's a, an opportunity to bash trans people. Ah, We've seen all of these organisations start to pop up and they're being given greater prominence. Some of them are... Do you know why they're popping up, Natasha? Because it's actually happened that men have ended up in women's prisons because those men, those big hairy men with hairy big balls on them, you know, they've claimed to be women and then they've gotten into women's prisons and they've sexually assaulted women in there. I think that's a pretty acceptable reason to be raising the issue, to be expressing your fears about this trans stuff, you know? Women shouldn't be... Women should have, spaces should be reserved exclusively for women. They shouldn't be accessible at all by men claiming to be a woman. Even advising government. I give over. Natasha Devon, Natasha, she goes on to describe herself then, I think. So on the surface of it, this is all about trans people. But I want to be very clear about this. As an LGBTQ person myself... How can you be an LGBTQ person? What the fuck is that? You're a lesbian. You're a woman. Right, we'll leave that one there. It's uh, the Richie Allen Show. The time is 21 minutes past the hour. Uh, Jess Phillips is making me laugh today. She's a, a Labour MP. Her, 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 manor, her manor is Birmingham Yardley, is Jess Phillips. And I don't know why she's getting stick. She presented an episode of Have I Got News For You recently. It airs on Fridays. It's been around for about 30 years. Ian Hislop and Paul Merton are the stars of it. And ever since years ago, they got rid of Angus Dayton, who used to present it for years. They got rid of him because he was caught in some sexual hijinks. They got rid of Angus or Angus. They began then to get guest hosts each week. Sometimes comedians, sometimes actors, actresses, sometimes politicians. Jess Phillips was on and there is consternation today because she was given £15,000 for appearing. And I don't know why they're giving Jess Phillips, some people are giving Jess Phillips a a bit of a trolling for this. not our fault. If somebody offered you £15,000 to sit behind a desk and read autocue, which is very easy. I've done it many times myself. You could train a monkey to do it. If monkey, if a monkey could speak, that is. Look down the camera, read the text. It's very, very easy. And they're kicking off. Of course, the, the real problem is here is the sort of nonsense that, that goes on at the BBC. Spending millions and millions of pounds on presenters like Claire Balding and Gary Lineker to talk about sport. Giving £15,000 to politicians to present programmes. I've never had a TV licence in my life, not here, nor did I have one in Ireland, and I never will. Stop whinging about Jess Phillips and have a look at the BBC and what it is it's actually doing. Of course, I'm not going to tell you what to do because I could be accused of inciting you to commit a crime because it is actually a crime not to pay your TV licence in this country if you do have a working television set. And it does get the BBC and other channels. But, um, yeah, don't give Jess Phillips shit for it. If they offered you 15 grand, you take it in a heartbeat, as I said. Spiro Skouras is standing by in Arizona. How cool is that? A little bit later on, we'll be speaking to a vastly experienced nurse. Uh, Jenny is back on the programme. Very articulate lady. Love having her on last uh, on around about January 10th, so about a month ago. We're going to talk about the fact that Jenny believes that 95% of things treated by health services here in the UK and around the world are preventable things, but there's no... 
real efforts. There's there's no real thought given to prevention in the NHS or other health services around Europe. Anywho, going back to my teenage years now, this is Betty Boo doing the do on the Richie Allen Show, 24 minutes past five. Welcome to Monday's programme. Lovely, lovely I said to be with you. The great Alison Clarkson, she was known as Betty Boo back in the late 80s, early 90s. London Lass, London Lass, still doing great stuff, writing songs for other people. In case you wonder, 26 minutes past five, my first guest is an old friend of mine. I should put that out there. Uh, top low, great writer, great broadcaster. Find him on YouTube. Uh, look for Spiro, S-P-I-R-O. You don't even need to put in Skouras, you'll find him. Uh, follow his channel, hundreds of thousands of followers. Uh, follow him on YouTube, excuse me, Twitter as well. But he does a lot for activistpost.com, which is a fantastic platform. He's in Arizona. It's been a long time since he, uh, well, since he graced us with his presence. Spiro, welcome back, pal. How are you? Hey, Richie, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be on here with you as always. Uh, one of absolutely the best uh, radio shows out there, probably the best. Uh, you have the greatest guests on and your audience is uh, legion. So thanks so much for having me on. Uh, give over, you're very kind, mate. Thanks, love having you on. We, we go way back to when none of us had a listener or a viewer, but um, we're not doing doing too bad now. I wanted to ask you straight straight up, I was fascinated this morning to read about the events in Ottawa, which I'm very interested in, and, and I know you are as well. And one, one of the things that uh, obviously people are talking about today is the mayor of Ottawa basically calling a state of emergency, saying that protesters outnumber the police there and security, I don't know, not security guards, but um, various private security firms that they might be employing to help out. And uh, the Freedom Convoy, which began as this movement against the the, the mandate for for the vaccines, it's staying there. It seems to be getting support by the people. And demonstrators outnumbering police, it looks great, Spiro. what, What is your take on what's been happening up there? Well, Richie, uh, there's a lot going on, and it's nothing warms my heart more than to see people coming together, crossing party lines of politics and all of the division. You know, of course, they try uh, to divide us any way that they can. So we're so busy fighting each other that we never see where the real threat to our freedoms and liberty is coming from. And of course, it's from uh, these authoritarian lockdowns, the measures, the COVID-1984 measures. being uh, you know dictated by the government so it to me it's incredible to see uh, millions of people around the world I, I cannot recall a time in history where people have united globally for a common cause one so basic and so essential as freedom that it's just incredible to see now of course yes um, Ottawa a lot all eyes have been on Ottawa and Canada over the past week week and a half with this trucker convoy and you know, ultimately, um, I think it's wonderful to see the people coming together and in uh, peaceful civil dis- civil disobedience. You know, non-compliance and uh, taking a stand. You know, and I I do have a few concerns. Obviously, you know how they try. Uh, they being the establishment seems to have a way to always try to spin things and. Um, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste type of a thing. And we're seeing the rhetoric uh, from the government there and other governments around the world, you know, start to increase. Uh, I've seen the idea of uh, 
you know, they're floating the idea of, of is it necessary to bring in the military, yeah. uh, you know, to, to get rid of these, the truckers and the protesters and everything like that. And, you know, so that's very concerning to me. And, you know, I have to wonder as well, there has already been, you know, talks of supply chain crisis, you know, and, and uh, which of course would appears to be, be a, a manufactured crisis that has gone along with the, the lockdowns and, and everything like that, that has been going on globally. It, it certainly seems like they want to try to, uh, make life as difficult as possible for those who do not want to comply. And even those who have complied and gone along with it and have gotten both doses went ahead and rolled up their sleeve. And they're still sitting there wondering when their lives are going to go back to normal. You know, they think they went along with it and uh, everything should be good to go now. And so they're trying to pit them against the unvaccinated. But, you know, it's it's amazing to see because we're seeing, and, and I know many people myself who have gotten uh, both doses of the vaccine and, and have now kind of realized, well, hey, uh, they admit that it doesn't prevent transmission. It doesn't work. Um, and they don't want to go along with the agenda that is tied to this as far as never ending boosters and, and yeah. everything that goes along with it. So there's a lot going on. Um, we're seeing just today uh, the uh, head of the Democratic Party uh, in Canada there. His last name is Singh. He's a member of parliament. He gave a, a press conference today, and he's going on there saying that these protesters and the truckers are a threat to their democracy, that they're violent, that they're dangerous, that they're uh, threatening people, harassing people. He even mentioned a couple times that they lit a building on fire. Yeah. You know, I've been watching the videos. I haven't seen any violence at all. I've seen nothing but communities and, and people coming together and standing for what they truly believe is just and right. and They're going they're out asking, of their way, Spiro. They're going out of their way to demonstrate that this is not violent, that it has nothing to do with violence. That's a hugely important point you made. And this guy, Jagmeet Singh, this new Democrat leader in, uh, in Canada, he's saying some outlandish things. He's talking about hate. There's no hate there. I'm like you, you know. I, you and I, we're cut from the same cloth. We take a step back. If you see something there that you think is a bit untoward, or if it's not right, you'll be the first person to say it. There's no hate there. There's no violence there. These are people saying, listen, you don't get to tell us that we lose our jobs if we don't take a medicine that we don't want. And that's about the size of it. Oh, absolutely. 100%. It's just amazing that they think they can get away with uh, going on there and just continuing to lie. Um, I guess they, because they have been getting away with it for so long, but you know, we really are at this point uh, reaching, um, you know, a, a position to where, you know, one, something's got to give at this point, you know, and uh, and we are seeing a lot of, uh, you know, restrictions and measures being rolled back. Uh, even there in the UK, you know, they're saying that they're not going to implement uh, the mandates for health workers. And, you know, we're starting to see them kind of take a step back, but they've already taken so many steps forward and established the infrastructure and the um you know, the whole idea that, that these measures can be implemented at any time yeah. as soon as the media says so, as soon as the government officials and experts say so. So something at this point has got to give. They're definitely rolling back. I don't know if it has to do with, uh, you know, there's there's elections coming up, midterm elections coming up here in this country, for example. And, you know, so maybe that's why here they're rolling some of this stuff back. Uh, but at the same time, um, people – one of the most important and beautiful things of this whole 
terrible situation that we've all been enduring over the past couple of years now is that it I believe that more people are awake now than ever than ever before to what's going on and 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 the agendas attached and uh, where this is going but I'm just concerned that as the people rise which we have to do we have to stand our ground this is one of the most important times in history for humanity in my view right now because if we go along with this there's there's going to be no going back no turning back if they're able to fully establish their digital IDs and and the whole, everything that goes along with it but um so sorry i lost my train there for a second this is uh this is an incredible time to be alive more and more people are waking up to what's taking place but oh the point that i wanted to make was as more and more people are beginning to become aware of what's taking place. I'm always cautious and curious and, and concerned and and have to bring this up that, you know, Bill Gates himself has warned, oh, they're they're gonna pay attention to the next one. That's and right. he's warned of domestic uh, you know, uh, biological terror events and stuff like that. So I have to be concerned and always mention the possibility of a false flag because they have their foot on the accelerator, they've exposed themselves, and they're not gonna stop uh, you know, without a fight. Spiros Guras is our guest, live from Arizona, activistpost.com, check him out. Excellently put there, and that's on my mind as well. What's the next step? Is this seeming kind of retreat by the agenda? Is it because people have, like you said, they've cottoned on to them? Or were they always planning to have a retreat at this stage to let things calm down? Time will tell. I don't like what you said, but I like the way you put it. Yeah, you've got to be looking out for false flag events uh, this year. No doubt about that. And just, just for a moment, staying with um, with Canada, with Ottawa, amazing to me the desperation of the media. Did I read over the weekend, Spiro, or last weekend, they've even tried to blame Russia. Is that right? They've they've accused Russia of supporting the, the Freedom Convoy. I mean, how could they say that with a straight face? It is unbelievable. It's 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 hysterical almost at this point because uh, it's just the same narrative over and over. And the memes that came out online uh, were hilarious as well, showing uh, you know pictures of Putin up in a big rig behind the wheel. It was hilarious. But you know, one thing that we got to point out, you know, as uh, the U.S. is sending troops to you know Eastern Europe to uh, you know prevent Putin, the evil Putin, and and Russia, you know, from invading Ukraine and and all this stuff that's going on in in Canada and around the world is that um, there, a video resurfaced recently of the World Economic Forum, Forum's uh, president, you know, the founder of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab. And I believe the video was from 2019. And he is, uh, you know, at one of these uh, conferences where he's given a speech and he's being interviewed. And he brags that uh, several world current world leaders were members of his youth uh, program, their, yeah. the World Economic Forum's uh, youth, youth leadership program or something like that. And he goes on to mention by name people like Trudeau and Macron and Merkel and Putin, even Putin. And, you know, we've all seen the videos of, of him praising Biden and all this kind of stuff. So at the end of the day, you know, they, they try to, OK, oh, isn't it convenient now when the narrative starts to change about, uh, you know, the, the, the tests don't work, the vaccines don't work. Uh, people are starting to push back this and that. Now, all of a sudden, there's a potential war, World War Three, like, you know, but at the end of the day, they are all uh, kissing the ring, essentially, of the World Economic Forum. The, the, to me, that is one of the greatest threats uh, that is uh, that we face that they are uh, they have infiltrated and they admit this in their own words 
and they don't say infiltrated, but they virtually, you know, every government and institution around the world. Well said. Uh, you know, well said, so, Spiro, and it's not just the governments. Well said, you also said institution. I've been looking into this for months, you know, helped, it must be said, helped by yours. I don't know how you do it, pal. You work a full-time job, you work nights, and you still manage to watch and consume thousands of hours of videos and newspaper articles a week. I think you're incredible for doing that. And you see a lot of stuff that I never see. And you're right to talk about institutions because the World Economic Forum hasn't just managed to place its 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 graduates in political parties and in government cabinets, but also the think tanks. The, the think tanks which basically advise governments and parties on which policies to to pursue the think tanks are filled to the brim with World Economic Forum, um, for want of a better way of putting it, graduates as well. It's all, it's all encompassing, really, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, the think tanks which uh, advise governments, uh, the cabinets of governments, the leadership of governments, all the way down to the central banks and heads of corporations, and and so they've tried to, you know, set their pieces on the world stage to make it appear, you know, you can throw the media in there as well. Of course, we all know that they are how horrible they are and compromised they are, but they have done this to try to, you know, of course, gain global control and power to implement this new system of control, which they is knocking on our doorstep at this point. But it's uh, even they want us to feel like we're alone, like there's like we're by ourselves and this and that. And and these global protests, millions of people worldwide, hundreds of millions of people worldwide uh, has shown that, you know what, we're not alone. There are people out there just like me, just like you, who just want to live their lives and be left alone. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, when they're coming to try to forever change the definition of what it means to be human, even, uh, you know, and yeah. these are the ones that want to merge man with machine and they want us to take these mRNA vaccines or shots or whatever. I mean, you know, you start to add up all of the uh, <laughs> the pieces of the agenda here and it doesn't look good for humanity. The future that they are dictate deciding for us behind closed doors you know we don't have a say are you kidding me no i'm not going along with it richie there's no way well, absolutely not spiro spiro scuras is our guest live from arizona activistpost.com lovely to have you back on the program pal climate might climate be the next strategic move by these people isn't it funny i shouldn't say funny it isn't funny we, we hear about CO2 meters being rolled out in schools and in businesses around the country. Now, I can't imagine what might happen, Spiro, if the CO2 meters, if they give the, the wrong reading. You know, will people be sent home every time? Will they? Will they be told, well, I'm sorry, kids, but you're going to have to go home now and, 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 and study at home. Will each one of us eventually be given a carbon allowance? in terms of, we'll be told, each one of us, well, there you are now, Spiro, in Arizona, this is the amount of carbon that you can create. This is the number. This is the volume of carbon you can create every month and you've got to stick to that or whatever. Now, that might be, you know, a couple of years down the line, but maybe in, 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 the, in the meantime. I, I heard Extinction Rebellion today, this group of, I don't want to be disparaging all the time, but to me they're lunatics, you know, to me they're idiots. And they're sincere, many of them. They really do seem to believe that the apocalypse is coming in the form of climate change. And, but, but they're ramping up their efforts. They said they don't care about going to jail, that, that during this year we're going to see unprecedented, um, you know, disruptive action to, to save 
the planet to save humanity from from destroying the planet. And I wonder Schwab and his pals or Schwab and his pals will climate now be the thing they might move on to it and they might leave the pandemic stuff maybe simmer for a bit and and go after climate what do you think you're absolutely right richie and we don't have to um even uh you know try to uh, guess as what they're going to do because they're outright telling us uh you know the central banks uh are teaming up of course with the world economic forum and other uh, major corporations around the world and they're already forming movements to where they're going to have to um you know, basically have a disclaimer to, you know, what their carbon footprint is and everything like that. And, you know, the, we've all heard the, you know, the global warming and this and that for, for years, for my entire life, basically, and how climate change is, is what is is called now is going to, is the biggest existential threat that they call, you know, that we face. And we have seen the COVID-1984 agenda accelerate the climate agenda. They go hand in hand at this point. And we saw that throughout the lockdowns where they were saying, oh, wow, look at, uh, you know, the the emissions have reduced by this and that because everyone's in their home hiding under the bed. <laughs> you, know, right. but, um, you know, they're they have had this goal because uh, essentially climate uh, we have seen there's always a boogeyman right and for the longest time it was other nation states it was the communists you know the soviet union and this and that well their their threats have evolved over time into become these unseen forces these these invisible boogeymen you know that it was terrorism for a while and you know these this guy somewhere in a cave somewhere is you know uh, the biggest threat we face and and we have to take all your freedoms because of you know to protect you and so that has evolved now into this the newest latest and greatest invisible enemy which is a virus it's it's everywhere all the time but you can't see it but it's there yeah. you know it, it's so absolutely essentially based on my research what i have seen is you know the the us governments the western governments uh, but particularly the us they there were well elements like the rockefeller foundation and others who were funding and giving money to Nazi Germany back in the day uh, and their eugenics programs. And after the war, uh, you know, everything associated with Nazis, I remind you, there was a day when Hitler was on the Time magazine cover, you know, so this, this, this was accepted somewhat back in the day. It's hard to believe now, but so after the war, uh, everything associated with Nazis had a, a bad stigma attached to it, right? Rightfully so, of course, including eugenics. So this, that program had to be repackaged and reintroduced. And Julian Huxley, uh, Huxley played a key role in that with the United Nations. And they came up with uh, the idea that climate would be uh, the mechanism used to control people to implement their agendas uh, as the boogeyman. And so, of course, they're they're going to be rolling into that. We're seeing all these beyond meat, you know, fake foods. I just saw the mayor of New York City today in a press conference saying that he's going to improve the health of people in his community by uh, getting everyone on plant-based diets and stuff. So, you know, next we're going to be eating bugs, uh, you know, roasted over a fire, Richie. That is... That I st- I still have the capacity to be astonished, despite having listened to researchers like yourself and others for years and understanding where things are going. I mean, the 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 balls of these people to take to television screens to enter people's homes and to tell them how they will be eating in the future. The balls of them. I mean, what is it about the that that's the thing that concerns me, Spiro, is that when they when they don't put the mask on any longer, 
when they don't in any way try to conceal the agenda, when they're openly talking about it. That's what makes me nervous, really. You know, because I think you said earlier on, many, many more people are waking up. You're absolutely right. You are 100% right. I couldn't contradict that. But I don't know how many of those people realise that it's one thing to be waking up to it, but don't stop and smell the roses and pat yourself on the back for waking up to it because the time is short now. They're openly discussing the way they want to transform our lives and the way they want to make life basically to be a prison on planet Earth. I'm astonished listening to these guys. Remember the Blasio Spiro? You were all over this, I remember, a few months ago, telling people you don't get to participate in society unless you take the vaccines. They don't try to hide it. And that tells me that this really is the end game now, isn't it? This is the end game. 100%, Richie. Uh, this is, a, like I said previously, the most important time, certainly in my life and potentially in humanity's life, uh, you know, existence. And I know that sounds, um, you know, Fanciful, intense. but it isn't. It isn't. It's, you're right. right. Go ahead. Well, you know, I mean, we're, we're seeing right now, of course, you know, uh, yes, Agenda 21 is is the backbone of this program, and the 2030 Agenda is a milestone of that program. Um, but what we're seeing right now is the transition into this new system of control, and it's a new and improved digitalized system of control, which has been referred to as the Digital Panopticon. And the COVID passports and the vaccine passports, uh, this, that, one of the... it. The vaccine passports is a front for digital IDs, and that is one of the main things that this crisis, this manufactured crisis, uh, is implementing. And once they can get us, and we're already starting to see this, and look at, for example, the uh, GoFundMe uh, in the Canadian trucker PayPal, or no, not PayPal, but the GoFundMe program where they had nine, ten million bucks that people donated. Well, hey, you know what? We don't like that cause. And it's admitted that the the Canadian government, the Ottawa government specifically, the mayor and the mayor's office was instrumental in putting the pressure on GoFundMe to stop those funds. That's right. Right? They're, they want to cut the funding. So that's just one example. If if you don't go along with the system, you know, if if you have that vaccine passport, which is essentially a digital ID, it'll be tied to every aspect of your life. Not only your vaccine status but your carbon footprint, your uh, criminal records, your your taxes, every aspect of your life. And if you don't go along with it, if you didn't get the latest booster, or like you said previously, you didn't, uh, you know, you exceeded your carbon footprint, they will shut you off. They will turn off your funds or whatever and restrict you. And, and it's just, it's the ultimate system of control. And we are at this point now where the technology has caught up with their envisioned uh, technocracy that they have planned for us. And we have people like, Gates, I mean, you know, with these mRNA vaccines that want that they admit uh, basically reprogram your your body to do certain things and they can continue to change that. And we have people like Musk who literally want to plant microchips in and in wires into your brains and yeah. into our brains. So and he's I mean, got this, people queuing up to take the stuff, hasn't he? He's got uh, yeah. I, I know on the one hand, people are waking up, so I don't want to be negative. They are many more people now are aware than were previously. But at the same time, there is a generation of people that can't wait for this stuff. I believe when Musk was trialling the chip that goes onto the surface of the brain, he was inundated with volunteers, Spiro. I mean, what the feck, as we say in Ireland, is going on? Why would you want to allow someone put a chip on your brain? You'd have to be, you'd have to be nuts, right? Absolutely. I would think so. That's, yeah. you know, they would have to... Uh 
uh, take me out first, uh, <laughs> to be honest with you, uh, Richie. But, you know, it's that's part of the social engineering. That's part of the, you know, we're our generations, our younger generations especially, are being inundated through every aspect of any screen time interface, whether it's the Internet, TV shows, whatever, you name it. That's it's it's the new cool hip thing to do. But at the same time, we are seeing uh, children uh, in schools uh, across the country, this country, uh, are walking out in mass due to uh, the mask mandates and stuff like that. So, you know, they're starting to to wake up too. And I think it's critically important that they do because there are the future generations that are going to, uh, you know, take our, our place here shortly one day. And, um, you know, that's teenagers are supposed to be rebels, Richie. I don't know about you, but when I was a teenager, I was a rebel. I was a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? You know, I, I stood for what I believed in, you know? Yeah. As, uh, that's right. And when, when we went to, to high school, when we went to uh, third level, when, when we went to colleges and universities, yeah, we did rebel. We did stand up against things. We did speak out. We did go on marches. You're absolutely right. Spiro Skouras is our guest. You just um, basically highlighted a moment ago just how they will come for the independent media. What they're doing to the truckers is what for several years they've done to quite a number of people that you and I know and have known over the years, good people who um, created content and they had an audience that wanted to consume that contest, excuse me, that content, and the audience would send them money through Patreon or through PayPal until those platforms stopped it. I mean, that is heinous to me. It's heinous to me that any financial institution, you know, w- would believe that it has the right to, to, to do that. But that's ultimately what I think is going to happen to the independent media, especially when they're pushing through Parliament here, these online harms bills. How long before they say to, whether it's PayPal, whether it's Patreon, whether it's GoFundMe, whether gov- imagine governments telling them, hey, listen, you shouldn't um, allow that Spiro guy have an account. Now, I know, my friend, that you work uh, for a living and uh, that's how you subsidise yourself. You're an amazing guy for doing that and you're not out there looking for money. But but there are a lot of people who, who do it full time. They're doing a decent job of it and that's how they'll come for them. They'll make it impossible for them to make a couple of bucks a month and there's no real money in this type of thing really. But for some of us, there's just enough to to put it on. But that's how they'll come for us in the end, isn't it? Through the uh, Through the financing. Well, yes, we're seeing that play out right now, like you mentioned, with the truckers. The yeah. Canadian government is openly uh, calling for you know the funding to be cut off. Uh, they're saying that a lot of the funding is coming from uh, America as well, and that uh, essentially that um, the protesters are getting foreign aid to overthrow the Canadian government, which is absurd. They just want they just want to end the mandates. That's it. They'll go home. Give them back their, you know, the cho- the choice, you know, the freedom to choose. But you're absolutely right. That's, you know, they have uh, for generations uh, built this debt-based system of slavery. And now that they have us all under their thumb, uh, you know, they use that uh, to, to as leverage against us. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, so a lot of people are talking about, okay, we need decentralized uh, uh, forms of payments. And, and they, a lot of people are saying, oh, Bitcoin and other cryptos and stuff like that. And, you know. Uh, it's, Do you trust Bitcoin? Can I can I jump in there just for a second? Some sure. some of our listeners, people who've followed people like you and, and me for years, they get a bit impatient with me because I don't have a lot of time for Bitcoin. And a gentleman got in touch with me recently. He said, Richie, I'd love to support you, but you don't have a Bitcoin wallet and 
you know, I, I, I would have sent you some Bitcoin or whatever. And uh, I thanked him and I meant it, but I said, look, I, I don't have any time for for this, you know, uh, for Bitcoin. I don't know anything about it and, and, and I don't trust it long term. I just don't, Spiro. I don't see how, you know, Hayden tries to educate me on this stuff, blockchain, but I don't understand it. Once it's cashless, well, then anybody with the ability can hack into it and, and do stuff. And surely anything that's digital, anything that's created, well, it's going to come with a set of rules dictated by whoever created that 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 digital currency. Maybe I'm talking bollocks here now, but I think you understand what I'm saying. To me, it's just another, you know, it's just another cashless uh, currency and it can be switched off and switched on easily in a way that obviously when you carry cash, in a way that it can't be switched on and off. Am I wrong? No, absolutely, Richie. You're on the, the money, so to speak, with that. You know, it's... Um, Cash offers that degree of anonymity, and at the end of the day, uh, the, these digital currencies uh, will nothing will be, you know, uh, the eye of Sauron will be able to see everything, uh, you know. Let's just put it that way, yeah. and and that is another uh, key implement, you know, key component of their new system of control. This this cashless society, which is prophetic, we've been hearing about forever. Well, it's here as well as these central banks, as these governments are rolling out. Some of them already have been rolling out their own digital currencies. And, you know, there, there will be the Bitcoin maximalists and, uh, you know, pro uh, crypto people stuff, you know, who will argue till the end, uh, you know, about how you're wrong about this and that. But in my view, uh, these cryptocurrencies were essentially a red herring and that they were created by the establishment themselves in the beginning. Look at who who had the motive, who had the capabilities to do this kind of stuff. And it was the intelligence agencies. And it was promoted in such a way at the beginning that it was anti-establishment and, you know, anti-bank and this and that and provide, you know, yeah. anonymity and everything like that, which is what we need, of course. But, um, the central banks would not allow anything or anyone to jeopardize their stranglehold uh, over the the currencies because the money is a, web, a tool of control Absolutely. at the end of the day. Look, how many countries did the U.S. invade because they wanted to get off of the dollar system? You know, Libya, Sudan. I mean, there's there's so many. But, uh, you know, you're, you're right to be skeptical of it. And um, and this is part of this new digitalized system of control that is knocking on our doorstep that we have to, uh, you know, we have to have choices and freedom and the ability to choose. And, and if I want to buy, uh, you know, if something from you, uh, Richie, I shouldn't, it shouldn't be all be digitalized. No, it should not. Where, if you want yeah. to come and buy my secondhand pool table or I want to buy your secondhand table tennis table and I want to give you 30 or 40 bucks for it, it's nobody's business. Only yours right. and mine. The money has been taxed to be Jesus by local authorities and the government before then. It's none of their business, even on a taxation level. You're absolutely right. We're just about out of time for today. It's been great catching up with you, pal. We're in touch anyway. You and me, you're always sending me really interesting things that I wouldn't have seen uh, through uh, uh, through uh, Twitter, through the email. So I really appreciate that. I hope uh, Lakey is doing okay, pal. And uh, I'd like you to come back a bit more often. I know you're up to your tonsils with uh, night shifts and trying to cram in the work you do with Activist Post but every couple of months on a Monday if you've got the time you should come back on or sooner than that you're always welcome here Spiro buddy Richie thanks so much for the the offer the invite and all, all the work that you do I, I know that you that it's 
it's a full-time job and then some what you do. So thanks so much. Uh, I, I tune in on a daily basis and I really enjoy it. And I look forward to uh, getting on back here again soon. Can't wait, Spiro. Activistpost.com. Look for Spiro there. He's also on YouTube. Look for Spiro Skouras. And you'll find Spiro on uh, Twitter. It's O underscore rips, isn't it? Still. I know you were kicked off there uh, and you went back no, home. What's it, to, was it now? I had to change that, Richie. It's, uh, it's actually... Orwell's underscore oh, ghost. Orwell's underscore, that's right. Yeah, yeah well, I knew yeah, you'd been kicked off. A couple times. Yeah, you weren't foolish enough to use the same or, or a similar or a similar <laughs> name. No, I appreciate that. Uh, thanks, Spiro. We'll talk again real soon. Spiro Skouras, live on the line. On his, uh, he's about to go to work later on, so fair play to him uh, from Arizona. We'll speak to him again uh, pretty soon. Now it's uh, two and a half minutes to the top of the hour. We'll be in Portugal shortly with Nurse Jenny Lowe's great lady. Let me read some of your comments as quick as I possibly can. Uh, Alex says, Time Man of the Year wasn't started as an accolade, but as recognition of who the formative figure of the year was. That's how I would think about the Hitler cover. Of course, today it is entirely politically motivated, so if he appeared on it now, I'd read more into it, says Alex. Gaz says Bill Gates is behind the plant meat. Silent Green was set in 2022, by the way, says Gaz. Pandora says, Evening, Richie. Always good to hear Spiro. The end game indeed, and they are not going to back down lightly, as they know they all hang, she says. Expect them to get nastier soon. Isabel says, The risk to this planet isn't uh, the risk to this planet and to mankind is not global warming but rather humans behavior towards each other it isn't a change of policies that is needed it is a change of how we view and treat each other says isabel patrick says uh, spiro is spot on agenda 21 is the base of this un approved shit and agenda 2030 is merely the current milestone don't call me dave says schwab's global shapers community is primarily aimed at the youth the youth population the youth are easily malleable having been raised to believe that they have inherited this enormous global challenge from their selfish elders. Craig says, in antiquity, humans created anthropomorphic beings, uh, elementals and gods, to explain significant and or abrupt climate change events. The current climate change hysterics still focus on the same principle. They have just transferred it from gods to humans. Thank you, Craig. Angela says, and which on the Bitcoin thing, Richie... Yeah, I've never trusted the, the Bitcoin, Angela. I like Spiro's idea that it was a, you know, intelligence agency creation. Uh, Melissa says, go fund me, go truck me. Hashtag go fund me, go truck me. The time is pretty much six o'clock. Going to take a tune. I'm going to go make wee wee. I've been drinking litres of water. It's the first time in a long time I've had to leave the studio to go for a wee wee in a two hour show. But there you are. I, I thought I'd share that with you. I could have said nothing. I could have said nothing. But I like to share things. This is orange juice and rip it up. Rip it up and start again, eh? There's a touch of build back better about that. We don't like that at all. Norris Jenny is next. Thanks for listening to the Richie Allen Radio Show. Live from Salford with me, the BBG. Orange juice and rip it up. 1983 I'm tempted to to venture 1983 I I did notice they're re-releasing all of those now compilations again from the 1980s as the Millennium series but they've given them a different name so the Millennium if you had those on CD I had them but they were stolen on me 
at every one of them in a big flight case with another 100 CDs. And they were nicked at a nightclub in Manchester back in 2005. I cried for hours. There were thousands of pounds worth of CDs in the blooming sink. Anywho, to more important matters. Uh, Thanks for your messages, by the way. Keep them coming in, richieallen.co.uk. Comment live there on the old menu bar. Uh, I really like my next guest a lot. Uh, Been on the programme a couple of times before. Really great to meet her. I met her on Twitter. She's on Twitter, by the way. You can find her on Twitter. She's Jenny Espelio. But I'll give you the Twitter handle. Probably the best thing to give you the Twitter handle. Uh, the Twitter handle is, it's at one, that's the number one, at one mirror 1978 She's uh, worked in the NHS for many years, did a lot of different things there, uh, impressive things, educating nurses who came from overseas, uh, recruiting nurses even, and has worked in private practice now for some years in Portugal. And I think she might even speak Portuguese. That can't be easy, that, but she does. We're going to talk today about a couple of things. In fact, we're going to talk about uh, health and empowering ourselves for true healing with mind, body and soul. It came up a couple of times. It came up last time on the programme. I think Jenny made the point that 90 to 95% of the things that are treated on the NHS or, or other health services, that those things were preventable. They were avoidable. But health services don't spend a lot of time, certainly not a lot of effort, in preventing people from becoming ill. It's lovely to welcome back to the programme our own Nurse Jenny. Nurse Jenny Espelio or Jenny Lowe's. Which do you prefer, Jenny? Uh, Jenny Lowe's is absolutely fine. Or or Jenny Espelio. Espelio means mirror in Portuguese. Ah, hence the at one mirror 1978. Ah, you see, I should have asked you that before. Welcome back, by the way. Uh, I'm genuinely chuffed you're back on. I can't not start with the obvious first question. Since we last spoke, the UK government has given, well, an indication. It's basically said that it's going to uh, drop the mandate. Is that something to be chuffed to bits about or should we be suspicious about it? I don't know if I'm chuffed about it because they were not very kind in leaving it right till the last minute to tell the NHS staff that they were going to reverse it. But I believe that Sajid said that they would look at it again if the situation arose that it might be needed. So I don't think it's like absolute celebration, but I think obviously it's a relief for a hundred or so thousand NHS workers who haven't taken the vaccine. But I think the damage has been done, to be honest. See, listening to people who have held the line and not taken it, their trust and um, belief in their management and the NHS has just gone really, and I can completely understand that. Uh, But it's good news in a way that they're not going to force, but they've already forced the care home staff and lots of people lost their jobs or took a vaccine that they didn't particularly want to have. Um, I think it's put a really dark light on the NHS, actually. I'm very disappointed. Do you know, know, listening to you there, I'm I'm mindful of Dr. Renee Hunderkamp, I think the lady's name is. She's done quite a bit with talk radio and GB News during the last uh, 18 months or so. And she said today, I think to talk radio, she said, it's, you know, on the one hand, she sounded very like you, actually. She said, on the one hand, yeah, OK, um, but they did leave it late, but OK, good. But she said, don't trust them. This, yeah. is, this is going to come in, this is going to come in kind of by the back door anyway, because when they're recruiting people for various roles, they're going to insist that those people coming into the service have had the jabs or if they don't tell them, 
they're just going to discount them. They're going to discount their applications if they don't have the jabs. And I thought, yeah, she's probably right. What do you think? Yeah, I think I've seen that as well, that they will um, put it as a requirement for new jobs. And also if people are moving departments. So if you're in one department and you get a promotion or you move again, um, then the requirement will be that you have to take the vaccine. But I think they're still on incredibly shaky ground because um, there is very poor evidence that the vaccine is effective, as we know. And also the safety profile is in question um, and it's getting more under question as the days go on. And I think that they, they're they on very shaky ground again. I don't know, you know, some discrimination lawyers might be able to look at it, but I just can't see how they can enforce it anyway, anywhere with the numbers we know that are inaccurate and they've been um, fudged to show the view that they want to show. And yeah, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's something to necessarily celebrate. I think that we still need to apply a lot of pressure um, and I think behind the scenes, you know, the NHS managers must have been panicking quite a lot that they were going to have to le- le- lose a lot of experienced staff, um, even though they were probably still putting pressure on their own staff. I wondered the conversations that they were having behind closed doors. But obviously their instructions are coming from the top down. So it's a very difficult situation for everyone to be in. And also they haven't really clarified um what will happen with staff that have had two or three vaccines? Are they going to have to continue to have them every six months or every year? And they haven't really explained that very well. Um, so I think there's going to be a further mass exodus, exodus from the NHS. And I think that it will probably put off quite a lot of people going into the NHS as well. No doubt about uh, it. No doubt. Can, yeah. on, on You said something a moment ago about evidence emerging about the safety of the jabs. I couldn't believe my eyes on, uh, God, it must have been Saturday. It must have been. Paul Newkey is a global health security editor for the Telegraph newspaper. Isn't that an Orwellian thing? Health security. Jesus, when you think, <laughs> when you think of the implications of that, you know, um, you, you know, security. Anyway, he, he, he wrote this article. Here's the headline. The headline is Israel's rise in COVID deaths. Why it's happening and the lessons for the UK. There are several reasons for Omicron's effect on one of the world's most highly vaccinated countries. That is an amazing uh, couple of paragraphs in this, I'll read you. And I, I, I know a lot of listeners won't have read this because they probably don't subscribe to the, uh, to the Telegraph. Let me just bring this up here now. It's, uh, it's, it, it makes astonishing reading because despite the fact that Israel has given a fourth jab to a lot of people, there are a lot of people dying, allegedly, of uh, seemingly of COVID in the country. And they're doing everything they can to avoid linking the deaths of people to the actual vaccines themselves. Do you know, I had the paragraph handy a second ago. Let me just bring it up here now. Let me bring it up here. You uh, probably won't be surprised when, when I say this. Uh, but here we go. Here we go. Israel is among the most highly vaccinated and boosted countries on the planet. Yet... They are breaking daily records for COVID deaths, tweeted Aaron Keriati, or uh, Keriati, Keriati, a professor of psychiatry who was recently fired by the University of California for refusing to abide by its vaccine mandate. So this guy's raising the issue. It's boosted to, to the hilt, Israel, but it's breaking records for COVID deaths. He says our public health establishment needs to explain this because people are 
dying. That's brilliant. But yet the Israeli Ministry of Health um, came out on, on Friday to say kind of, well, nothing to see here. And they went around the houses giving all sorts of explanations as to why people are dying, uh, saying older people and they might die anyway and all this sort of stuff. But the, the it's out there. Israel has given more jabs than anyone and people are dying more in Israel than anywhere else, right? So there's yeah. something going on with these jabs. End of story. Well, they're certainly not 95% effective, are they? No. That the, you know, that there was the original estimation. But obviously, remember that that 95% effective was only two months after the second dose, or 28 days, I think, after the second dose. So there wasn't any longer term data on efficacy after that, you know, that's been revealed. But obviously, the Pfizer... Uh, documents are going to have to start being revealed. And I think they have to reveal all of them, all 55,000 by June. So I think the first batch is due like in the next few weeks. So that's going to be really interesting. The raw data that's come from the Pfizer trial, uh, provided that they haven't redacted it. I was just going to say that. Do you trust that they will be unredacted? Because I would struggle to trust it. Uh, Probably not, but let's see. Let's Let's see. (laughs) Let's not preempt it. Yeah, let's be be positive and say that they're going to reveal everything. Yes, a company that has a history of burying that, <laughs> that's been fined billions of dollars for hiding documents and killing people with dreadful medicines yeah. over the years. Anyway, we're, we're going to talk about something positive. Uh, Jenny Lowe's is on the programme, vastly experienced uh, nurse. It's a real pleasure to speak with uh, Jenny today. Thanks for all your messages, by the way, about Jenny and uh, about what we're going to talk about. You said last time, I, I, I was listening back to our previous conversation today, and just just to get it right, you said 90 to 95% of, of I suppose, cases, people going to doctors or hospitals, they're, they're going to see their doctor, they're ending up in hospital with something that was preventable, but that there's not really been any interest in preventing people from becoming ill. I want you to flesh that out. I'll tell you why. And I'm going to give you all the space in the world. I won't be interrupting you. Because I get a bit worried when governments start talking about preventing med- preventing illnesses, Jenny, because it's usually, when they talk about preventing, it's usually, you know, telling people what to do, what they should eat, what, you know, what they shouldn't eat. And I think it, it, it's not too long before that stuff ends up becoming compulsory. And uh, look, you know where I'm going with that, but I don't want to go down that road. Tell us um, about the sorts of things that could be prevented, uh, how they could be prevented, and why it is you think that, you know, our health services don't spend any time on that. Uh, well, first of all, I just want to say that the health service obviously still does very good work. And um, in terms of emergency and acute care, there isn't really any other place that you could go to get treatment. So I'm not saying that the modern medical model doesn't have a function. It absolutely does. Uh, but the reason why I said about 90 to 95 percent of um, patients that are in hospital or diseases are preventable is because it's estimated at between one to five percent of disease is called is caused by defective genes. So obviously, we get copies of genes when we're conceived, uh, half from our mother, half from our father. And they used to believe the central medical dogma believed that your genetics controls your destiny and your uh, how your health will unfold. But since the Human Genome Project, they realized that actually only 2% of our genes actually code for proteins. And the rest they used to call junk. 
But actually, what they know now is that the rest of the, the code that's in the DNA is not junk at all. And it's to do with um, different proteins and chemical messengers and almost like the medium in which the way that gene can be expressed. So you can't change your fixed genetics, but you can most definitely change the environment you give your genes in the way that it may or may not um, lead to disease. So that's why most things are preventable, because essentially the environment that you give your body and your genes is how it will express as a disease or not. So there's a saying that says your um, genetics load the gun, but your environment pulls the trigger. And when I say environment, I don't just mean like the house that we live in. I mean, the food that we eat, the water we drink, the people we surround ourselves with, our levels of stress. Um, many different things, nutritional deficiencies, um, and then genetics and the mitochondrial DNA that goes passed down from your maternal side too. So there are lots and lots of things that impact on our health. And our bodies are uh, a very acute detection system of when we've got a problem. But living in the society in the way in which we live, um, we we can't stop for illness like people have to work people have to raise families people have to do things so even if they've got something that's just niggling them slightly they might take paracetamol for six weeks because it, it hurts and then after six weeks it seems to resolve but the problem may still be there um, and we get used to ignoring problems and blocking problems as well we the the society we live in is like expert at blocking issues with stress or um, relationship problems that they have or addictions that they have. We're very good at blocking things. So the, the theory is, is that if you adapt your environment to give your genes the best chance of expressing in the right way, then disease shouldn't arise. And you have genetic susceptibilities that run through families but if you think about it, when you're conceived, you are living like your mother and father live as such. So your your genetics and the way in which they express um, are very linked to how you live in your environment. So the number one cause of illness, without a shadow of a doubt, is stress. And when people talk about stress, it's like, have I got a deadline that I need to meet or right. a moving house or yeah. something like that? But stress can be internal or external stresses. And what happens is we get um, our bodies detect a threat and it's either a real or a perceived threat. So it doesn't even have to be something that's physically in front of you. It can be something that you've remembered from your past or you've been triggered or there are lots of reasons why people um, activate their HPA access. So the HPA access is we have the hypothalamus, which recognizes the threat, which sends a message to our pituitary to send a message to our adrenal glands, which are the little glands that sit on top of your kidney, to release stress hormones so that you can either fight or flight. So we, lots of us know about fight or flight. And, you know, if you, you're presented with a danger like a, a lion that wants to eat you, your body kicks into overdrive to be able to stand and fight or to run away. And it also does that with emotional stress and other stresses that we have around us. So what happens when our HPA access is activated is we release a lot of chemical messages and catecholamines in our blood. And it releases cortisol, adrenaline and noradrenaline. And what that does is it 
increases your heart rate, increases your blood pressure, um, increases the blood supply to your lungs so that you can leg it if you need to, if there's a lion standing in front of you. But that lion could be your boss or that lion could be your partner or a family member or something that's causing you stress. So we in our in our modern society, lots of us live in very heightened periods of stress for a very long time. And that can cause all sorts of problems for an individual from um, heart disease, high blood pressure, um, it can cause nutritional and mineral deficiencies because you use up a lot of what you have to be able to fight that stress. And if we're constantly also reliving that stress as well. So if you've had a traumatic inc incident, we know about PTSD, that's what's happening in PTSD. Even if they're not consciously thinking about it, it's deeply ingrained in their subconscious and they're constantly triggering their stress response. And over time, that does so much damage to your body internally and externally, and it can cause a knock-on effect of loads of different things. So most illness is precipitated by an event. So your genetics load the gun, the environment like pulls the trigger, but it's fired when there's an event. So that event could be a viral illness or a bacterial infection, or it could be um, food poisoning or a divorce or a bereavement. It could be any, any of those things. And the knock-on effect of that, um, if we don't deal with it, is very difficult to overcome. And that's why when um, I'm seeing my clients is we don't just look at the body, we look at the mind and the soul as well, because you can't really get true healing until you've dealt with the three together. So lots of people think health is just about diet and exercise, but it's not. It's about much more than that. And Jenny, if, did, did these ideas originate in the Far East, Tibet and, and places like that? Are we going back a long time ago? Yeah, well, the, the Ayurvedic, so the, the Hindu, the Ayurvedic text, they talk about epigenetics, really, uh, you know, 3000 years ago. So they, they know very well. Hippocrates knew. He used to say, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. And yeah. um, the, the environment that we give our body is what leads to dis-ease or disease. And really, disease is your body being at dis-ease. It's not at ease. It's, it's struggling in some way. And the thing is with the body as well is that we have such sophisticated feedback systems and compensatory systems as well that the problem sometimes doesn't appear where the actual root cause is, if you know what I mean. So when we're talking about stress, something really simple that can happen when we're talking about stress is that your hydrochloric acid levels in your stomach decrease and you use up lots more of your nutrients that you have in your body to be able to deal with the process of stress. And if our stomach acid is low or in the wrong place, because sometimes it could be in the wrong place, and the reason why it's in the wrong place is because the valve at the top of the stomach gets um, loose and the acid comes back up. So it's not that you've necessarily got high acid, it's just that it's in the wrong place. If that happens, you're not able to break your food down as well, um, we encounter a lot of pathogens and microbes in our day-to-day -day life and our hydrochloric acid neutralizes that and it helps start the process so that we can extract the nutrients from our food. But if, if um, you have a long period where your stomach acid is low, 
or high, if it's high, then you can have all sorts of problems with esophagitis and burning your esophagus, and that can lead to cancer. So that's not good either. Um, but the, the low stomach acid can cause lots of problems. And if you're, the, what you've eaten goes into your small intestine in an undigested state, if it's not been acted upon by the enzymes and the hydrochloric acid in your stomach, then the, um, your gut bacteria has a lot more work to do to break down that food further and to extract more nutrients. And then food can sit in the small intestine and like putrefy, I suppose. And then you get more symptoms with bloating and with diarrhea and lots of digestive systems. So um, stress and the gut are very closely linked. Um, one thing I like to say to my clients is, you know, when you're you're feeling stressed or you're angry about something or someone else is angry, you can see in their face that their muscles are tense and that they're frowning. The muscles in your body change whether you're stressed or you're relaxed or happy. And the same thing happens in your gut. So once we have problems in the gut, then then you can have uh, leaky walls of the intestine, which means that things that shouldn't pass through into the bloodstream do, those things should be dealt with in the intestine and then eliminated. But you get things like proteins and microbes and microplastics and things like that that are entering the bloodstream and then they cause further inflammation and uh, worsening illness, I suppose. So most chronic illness is definitely um, treatable um, and you can reverse things simply just by diet in some cases. And so, avoidable. They're treatable, but they're also hugely avoidable. Yes. And what you're telling me is something somebody told me many years ago on a programme I did in Spain. It was fascinating that you you present with these symptoms and the doctor who he or she might be, you know, they might be very bright, but they've gone through a very regimented system over a period of years where they are basically given solutions to to various ailments. So your doctor is going to say, right, there's a prescription, there's a painkiller. And ultimately, you're you're dealing with a symptom and you are not dealing with the underlying problem at all, a lot of the time. Yeah, and then those treatments that you're given to manage the symptom may lead to more problems and worsening health. So an example of that is um, statins with cholesterol. So cholesterol has been given a really bad rap over the years. And, you know, we're told that saturated fat and things like eggs raise your cholesterol. But actually, most of the cholesterol that you have in your body is produced by your own body. I think it's 70 percent. Um, and having a high cholesterol is not necessarily going to lead you to a higher risk of heart disease. It very much depends on how much um, the ratio between the high density lipoproteins and low density and what your um, triglycerides are like. Um, but the real cause of heart disease is inflammation. The cause of heart disease is not the cholesterol itself. So doctors look at numbers and they look at um, total cholesterol and they get totally freaked out. And they, what they do is they prescribe the patient statins. So they tell the patient to cut down on saturated fat and they put them on statins. And I think statins are one of the most prescribed drugs in the world. And they have a huge amount of side effects. I know lots of people that have taken statins and they've had side effects. Um, I'm not saying that everybody shouldn't be on statins, but what I'm saying is that there are ways in which that you can reduce your cholesterol and increase your high density lipoproteins and you can be much more 
confident that you're not going to then lead to heart disease. But the thing is, is that when you go to a doctor's, they tell you you've got a disease or you've got an illness. And usually they say you have to have this pill to to rectify the problem. And the person leaves there thinking that they've got a problem and it's a big problem. And then that sticks in their head all the time. And they believe that there is no cure and that they can't change anything and that they have to be on medication for life. But that's not necessarily the case. And if they spend a lot more money on proper prevention, not I'm not talking about the type of prevention they do now. They do, of course, smoking cessation prevention. They do diet um, classes and things like that with people. But even the advice that comes from the NHS on diet, like the, it's called the Eat Well Plate, is really bad advice because they encourage vegetable and seed oils and vegetables and seed oils and sugar and high carbohydrate diets are like the leading cause of inflammation. So in the one hand, they're telling them one thing and on the other hand, they're actually giving them quite dangerous advice. So I don't know if that's by design, Richie. I can't work it out. Um, but you're willing to consider the possibility because, again, I've heard from from people over the years who whose thinking aligns with yours, Jenny, that the, the high sugar diet is a, a big red flag for cancer. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let me explain a little bit about sugar. So part of a, a good or bad diet is whether you have a balanced plate. So uh, people eat very high carbohydrate load meals. And carbohydrates aren't bad in themselves. You have starchy and non-starchy carbohydrates. They're not all created created equal. Um, but the problem is with carbohydrates is, is that they're rapidly absorbed into the bloodstream and they give your blood sugar a spike. So what your body does is it releases insulin so that it can get the blood sugar into the cells. Once the sugar's in the cells and there's still excess uh, glucose floating around, then they'll put that into storage. And then what will happen is because they've removed it so quickly out of your circulatory system is that within a short period of time after a very carb heavy meal, you'll probably be hungry again because your blood sugar will drop and your body will say to you, you need to eat. And then in the meantime, you go through this process again. And during that process, your body detects stress. So when it goes into the low blood sugars, it just detects that you are in stress. So it also releases adrenaline, noradrenaline, cortisol. Um, you get um, excess laid down as fat. So that's why people have that excess around their belly. Um, and if you're not using the carbohydrate that's in your liver, so if you're not pushing yourself for exercise during exercise, you're not replenishing that store. So the liver gets very heavy and it is not efficient at doing its job as it should be. I mean, the liver is, it doesn't get very much attention, the liver. And people just think about the liver to do with alcohol, really. They don't think about it to do with anything else. But it's like it's our power, like our sewage works, where it's clearing everything. And it's such a good filter system. And we have to keep it running efficiently. Otherwise, we also come into problems. But essentially, most disease is caused by inflammation. And the, the biggest contributors to that are sugar and seed oils and vegetable oils because they oxidize and they stack on top of each other. So they form bigger molecules. So the whole, you know, I, over the what, 30, 40 years, I remember them demonizing eggs, them demonizing red meat, um, them demonizing animal fat and all those things. 
and they've pushed us more towards uh, sugar, carbohydrate, um, sweeteners, seed oils, and vegetable oils because they sound healthier, right? So if you say yeah. to someone vegetable oil, vegetable oil sounds healthy, but if you actually look at the process that they have to go through to extract that oil, it's anything but normal and natural, and really lard or ghee or duck fat would be a better option to fry, you know, food in because it doesn't oxidize at high temperature. So the advice, the very basic advice that they're giving out is being proven to be wrong. Now, do you suspect, can I interrupt there, Jen? Sorry for interrupting because I don't want to interrupt. I'm fascinated okay. by this and I genuinely am. I'm not saying it. I'm uh, absolutely gripped by this. The, the, the bad advice, it, for me, it always comes back to the question, is this, is this unknowingly giving bad advice or is this someone wanting to keep people in a perpetual state of stress and inflammation and of dis-ease? Well, it seems to be, doesn't it? Because even with the whole COVID pandemic, um, there's been some very simple things that they could have advised people to do and given them, given people knowledge and information about why certain things may or may not work. Now, from very early on, they knew that low vitamin D levels led to a higher severity and mortality and risk of admission to ITU. And they've known for years that low vitamin D levels impacts on the mortality rate from seasonal flu and other respiratory viruses. So they've known that for a long, 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 long time. And, uh, you know, at the beginning, Matt Hancock refused, well, actually said that it was a lie, and that there was no evidence that it was protective. But if they'd have talked about that way back in December 20, 2019 or January 2020, then there could have been quite a lot of preventable deaths. And all they had to do was instead of focusing all the efforts on, you know, the vaccination program was that they could have just screened all the high risk groups, which are the black and ethnic minority groups that are living in the UK because melanin means they don't absorb as much vitamin D and shift workers and um, people that are living in nursing homes or are inside that they don't get out very much. And just those risk groups, if they'd have just done that, they probably could have saved quite a lot of lives. But obviously, that's not... <laughs> what did I see once? That um, uh, curing people is not a good business model. Yeah, and wouldn't that go for... Wouldn't wouldn't that go for flu seasons as well? I think, yeah. I think the very first time we spoke, we talked about why every year, you know, once it gets to about, say, September, why don't they say to... I mean, it, it kind of shone out of you talking about old people. I know you have a lot of time for senior people, for experience, experience and experienced people. You've obviously had some great um, seniors, grandparents and, and people you've known in your life. Why wouldn't you say every autumn right now, let's, let's look at our beloved uh, elderly folks. Let's give them the supplements they need. Let's, as naturally as we possibly can, give them the vitamin D3 and the zinc. I mean, it's, there's no le legitimate answer to that question. There's no r rational reason for not doing that every winter or every autumn, knowing you're going to have flu. Yeah, absolutely. And there are lots of um, nutritional supplements that that you can use therapeutically. And there are lots of people that do have lots of deficiencies. But the way in which they test for them, really, in the in the health service, is that they do blood tests. And blood tests are quite good um, for a lot of markers, but they're not for all of them because all it tells you is what's circulating in the bloodstream. It doesn't tell you how well the cells are utilizing that 
minerals. So you can have normal levels, say, of vitamin B12 on blood. But actually, if you test the metabolic uh, markers in urine, you can really see how well the body is utilizing that vitamin. And people can be very deficient, but on their bloods, it looks like they're not. So um, vitamin D testing is actually quite cheap. You can, I think you can order tests for 30 quid or something um, off the internet and get them sent off. So it, it would be even cheaper for the labs to be running them via the NHS. So it's not an expensive intervention. And the, the supplement itself is, is also, you know, pretty cheap. Um, you know, the cost benefit analysis, I'm sure would show that it would be beneficial. But I'll tell you, but right back at the beginning, I post actually, it was before COVID, I was posting some things on Facebook about vitamin D. And then when COVID cropped up, I posted the same article, which was proving that low vitamin D levels increase severity in influenza and uh, other respiratory viruses. And an old GP friend of mine I used to work I worked with her when she was a new house officer in the hospital and then she went into GP land she sent me a message and she said uh, Jenny can you tell me what um, range I'm looking for and how much I need to give to bring it up to that range and that's a GP wow Imagine so that. how could you I not just, know I just don't think they know yeah I, I don't think it's a, an area of focus and I'm not blaming the GPs there's some great GPs out there but yeah. Um, they get 10 minutes to see you and 10 minutes is nowhere near no. enough time to be able to analyze what's really going on with somebody. My first appointments I have with patients usually last 90 minutes. 90 minutes, isn't that incredible? 90 minutes, And yeah. I remember going to our family doctor when we were younger, Audrey Farrell. Three old ladies ran a surgery in Waterford City. The, the, the Corbett sisters, Maureen and uh, Sheila Corbett, they were in their 80s, they were still practicing. And they had a, a younger doctor called Audrey Farrell. They ran a, a private practice in Waterford and they, never, they hardly ever charged anybody. They were just amazing women. And you couldn't get out of there, Jenny. Yeah. <laughs> they wanted to know everything. Yeah, well, and, that's how it should be. And they would never, you, you, you'd have to stab them to death. I shouldn't say that, but to, you'd have to gouge one of their eyes out to get an antibiotic. <laughs> to get an antibiotic. They wouldn't have it. Yeah, get out and well, get some fresh air. Get out to the beach. I know it's cold. Wrap up well. Get out in the fresh air. Get some sunshine. Um, but just like you said there, time for people. Yeah, and also, you know, the way the, the NHS is set up is not particularly he a healing environment. You know, if you go to the, the doctors, you have, well, at the moment, if you can get to see the doctors, but you sit in the doctor's surgery for ages, your appointments are always late because they're always running late. Yeah. And then you feel like you're wasting their time or you know there are some people that go to the doctors with everything and there are some people that have to really you know make themselves go to the doctors because they hate going so much but yeah 10 minutes or 15 minute appointments are nowhere near enough time to be able to work out what's going on underneath and I'll give you an example you have a woman who has recurrent urine infections, and that's quite common with lots of women, especially when they are um, like younger in their teenage years, and then when they're entering kind of menopause, hormones change, and it can cause you know disbalance, imbalance. So uh, the woman goes to her GP, I don't know, six times in a year, and she's had antibiotics six times, and she keeps getting it. So, but what's the doctor going to do? They're going to keep giving more and more and more antibiotics that's going to cause more dysbiosis in the gut, which is going to cause more risk of translocation of bacteria into the bladder, which means that they then get another urine infection. Now, 
where, with urine infections, you have to be really careful that you don't end up with a kidney infection. And a kidney infection obviously could be quite serious. So I understand why the doctors give out antibiotics as the first point of call. It's easy to prescribe. They give them and they go off. But they don't actually really know what damage, further damage those antibiotics could be doing. But they're not ruling out or finding out what the underlying cause is or teaching the person about ways in which they can help uh, lower their risk. So um, I I was this woman and um, I was given an antibiotic called ciprofloxacin. Now, I'd already had like three or four courses of antibiotics over 18 months. And I was, if anybody's ever had a urine infection, it makes you feel really crap, but you still function because, you know, you can still do things, but it makes you feel really, really awful. And as a busy mum, working mum of two, I don't want to be laid out with a urine infection and the risk of having a, um, a kidney infection. So I went to the doctors. He, he dipped the urine. It looked like it had an infection and he wrote out the prescription for ciprofloxacin. Right. I got home and I took one day's worth of dose. And after I took the second dose, I knew that it had done something to my body and that I couldn't take any more. And it wasn't until I started to look into it that I realized that I think it's 0.8% risk per 100. So that means per 100 people, like one person would suffer what I suffered. And I actually wasn't the most acute side effect that you could have. Some people have been uh, paralyzed, not paralyzed, but um, they've been injured so badly that they're now in a wheelchair. So what, what it did was it damaged my tendons. And I went from doing CrossFit competitions and being able to squat squat one and a half times my body weight to struggling to make the bed. And that was because my mitochondria had been completely destroyed. So the powerhouse of my, my cell. And this is actually what kind of really got me into looking more into uh, functional medicine and integrative health. That was the watershed uh, moment for you, was it? It was one of them. And there's been quite a few. I mean, I could talk to you for hours about all the mistakes that have happened with me. (laughs) And the thing is, is that I've given ciprofloxacin many times intravenously or orally to patients, and I never knew it could cause the catastrophic injuries that it can cause. Now, because I'm the type of person that I am, I researched it really, really heavily. And I, I, I know my body very well. So I knew within the second dose that something was wrong and I wasn't going to take any more. But sometimes people take repeated doses and they don't realise it's the drug that's causing them a problem. They don't um, realise it, yeah. Yeah, and it might have been. The issue with me, that what it was, was that I actually had um, a small intestine bacterial overgrowth, which was translocating into my bladder. It was my gut that was the problem, not my bladder. And what I did after I took the two doses of the ciprofloxacin is that I drank gallons of dandelion tea and it actually flushed it and I corrected my dysbiosis in my gut and it never happened. I've never had another urine infection since, thank God. So this was a few years ago. Uh, But people don't realise how common side effects are with different medication and what the impact of that medication is actually doing. So I'm not again, I'm not saying that medications are never needed because they are, um, but they get dished out like smarties with very little focus on the consequences of what that might do to a person's underlying system. Yes. And again, if you go back to what you said a moment ago, the 10 minute consultations, who can blame the GP? What else can they do? 
Exactly. They yeah. want to, you want to go out of the GP. With something. No, yeah. with something. So, you know, with the, the functional medicine or the integrative health, what they do is we go through a very long questionnaire. And on that questionnaire has things that you may think is a bit random, but they're not. They all link into part of a picture. So we ask things like, well, you, were you a full term baby? Were you breastfed? Did you have a lot of sugar as a child? Um, were you exposed to any abuse? Uh, lots and lots of different questions like that. So we can try and build a picture as to where the problem may have started and how we can resolve. Hang on resolve a second them. now. Were you a full term baby? I, th- this is blowing my mind. <laughs> it, no, it really is. And we'll, we'll have to do a part two of this in, in, uh, in, in very short order. If you can manage it next week or the week after, we'll come back to this again. Obviously, we've got about 12, 13 minutes left today. Um, I, I, I booked Spiro and I was, I was telling Jenny earlier on today, Jenny was supposed to be on for pretty much the whole show, but I'd booked um, my old mate Spiro and I am a bit of an idiot. I'm sure that's well established, but um, there's so much in this and you've really got me now today. Even if somebody is born prematurely, that is going to have some impact. Yeah, lots of impact. So first of all, you haven't finished your full development. So you're um, a human baby should take 260 days to cook. Um, And if you're born prematurely and you need intervention from the health service and you're in NICU or you're in special care baby unit, that those early moments of your life, obviously, Um, are completely unnatural to what they should be. So uh, babies that are premature, they have a lot of sensory issues because when they're tiny and they're in intensive care and there's beeps going off all the time and there's flashing lights and they're not in an environment where they should be, that's where their stress response is, you know, being developed. Um, So it can have long-term impacts in terms of how people manage long-term stress. And even the final three months of pregnancy, um, are part of what forms your subconscious programming. So the last gestation of pregnancy, and then they say up to the age of seven is your subconscious, uh, subconscious programming that you receive. So most of that that you receive in those first seven years shapes your later life and how you deal with and react to certain situations that crop up in life or illness or, or whatever. So, yeah, so even... Even if you're a cesarean baby and not a vaginal birth baby or that you were bottle fed, not breastfed, um, they can also have impacts on your your microbiome. So you would well. say to women who could give birth naturally but want to avoid the discomfort of that and have a cesarean, you would say to them, because you can give birth naturally, do it, don't have the cesarean. Well, obviously, it's up to every woman yeah. individually and women make choices based upon their life experience. And I would never judge that. But um, yes, there is evidence that obviously it's not a natural, is it, that when you have a cesarean because no, you're not you're going through the birth it. canal, yeah. you know, as the baby passes through the birth canal, the, the skull molds and you also get your first exposure as a baby to your mother's microbiome. Um, and that like that's your setup for life, really. Uh, so if you're not doing that because you're coming out of a sterile opening in the in the abdomen, you're not getting that exposure to the microbiome from the vaginal delivery. So, yeah, I mean, it's fascinating stuff, really. And But there is evidence to show that babies that are born vaginally have a more uh, diverse microbiome at birth that or 
in their early weeks than cesareans do. I know. I hate, to, I hate to ask this question. Are what we would consider to be established academic institutions looking at that or is it people who work in integrative and complementary medicine studying it? Not, not that I would be in any way now, you know, coming down on it if it is uh, alternative or complementary practitioners at all. I'm, I'm just wondering because I'd like to think that, uh, you know, the big universities would be interested in that. I think there, ha- there has been some research done from the big universities, but um, and I think there's some very forward thinking maternity units. Uh, that would consider consider it. And it, many years ago, they used to give women enemas and shave them before birth. Right. And now, obviously, they've reversed that now, and they don't do that anymore unless it's indicated. Um, they do in Portugal, but they don't in the UK. That's so an enema, an enema would be it would be a, a good thing health wise for for mother and baby. Would it before? Well, they used to say that it would reduce the risk of infection because right. you clear everything out, but actually. Uh, what they're saying is it should be just as naturally, minimally, minimally medically intervened um, as possible because you want that baby to be born in the most natural environment as wow. it can be. Let me ask you this as well. I am not taking the piss now. By the way, Jenny, <laughs> no, I'm, not, I'm going to ask, it's going to be a ridiculous question, but I don't care because I'm fascinated. Uh, Jenny Lowe's is our, our guest. Jenny these days is in private practice. She's a very, very experienced nurse, has really done it all really in terms of recruiting and training. And these days she's very interested in complementary therapy, integrative medicine. We've been talking about the impact that stress has on the body, our diet. I've loved every second of it. I look forward to doing this again real soon because I have a thousand more questions. But I wanted to ask you this. Um, I've always had a bit of a soft spot for Tom Cruise. Always. I lo- <laughs> I have. I, you know, what, what people believe is their own business. I never judge anybody. <laughs> I don't, I don't have a lot of time for Scientology, but I like old Tom, I like his films and I like his early interviews. I was fascinated by something that Scientologists believe about women giving birth naturally and, and screaming, because labour must be, God only knows, I'll never know, uh, but it must be uh, stressful. And that basically the impact of the mother expressing her distress vocally wouldn't be great for a baby. Now, I, I would think that excuse my French, horse shit um, because women have been screaming in labour for ever and a day but um, but I'm also interested in ideas that I know nothing about uh, has, is that something you've ever looked into or is it just silly? No, it's not silly at all uh, because, so, labour is very painful. It, you've yeah, gone through it yourself um, and, but the way in which we manage our women in labour we don't do a very good job of making sure they're really comfortable and calm and that they're getting as little intervention as possible because everybody's so afraid of litigation and everything else. So if the mother's stressed and she's screaming because she's stressed, screaming actually might help because it's a bit of a release. Um, So the making the noise might actually help. But essentially, the woman is under acute stress while she's giving birth. And if she's in pain, most definitely, she's uh, giving off lots of stress hormones. And that is obviously being absorbed by the baby, via the placenta. So I think birth is as important as death. And birth should be eased in as much as possible. And it definitely has an impact. I'm absolutely convinced convinced it does have an impact. If you have a traumatic bad birth the baby may not be as settled and you might not be as settled either. And a lot of women suffer trauma in labour, like real trauma. Um, And 
it can be quite distressing. With my first, I had quite a lot of trauma with my first baby. And I was a bit shell-shocked for quite a few months, actually. Uh, and that probably did affect the initial bond. And I did bond with him really well, but I think it did impact on the bond that I was able to establish early on because I was, you know, I felt like I'd been through the mill and right. I was, you know, injured and everything. So, Jesus. but I mean... I think it does have a difference. And I went to a conference, it must have been about 10 years ago, and it was called The Humanization of Birth. And we've dehumanized it and we've medicalized it. And, you know, lots lots of women do obviously have home births now and they have doulas and they have midwives at the home. water and everything, yeah. Yeah, and that is a much more calming environment for the mother and the baby when they enter into life. So... You know, the hospitals obviously are there in emergencies and they're there to provide a service and safety for delivering mums. And the risk of losing a baby during delivery or a mum has obviously reduced a lot. Um, but I wonder what the longer term impact has on some women post labour because it can be quite traumatic. I can imagine. Uh, the, the forceps were used on me, believe it or not. The, I, the dents, I still have the dents in my skull. Would you believe? Yeah, the forceps, yeah. Had to be dragged out. That's because I was born at two minutes to midnight on New Year's Eve 1974. <laughs> and by her own admission, she wanted to hang on because there was a financial reward or there was a, a monetary prize back then for the first baby to be born in, I think, in the city and in the country. But um, I came out anyway. And it was difficult. And uh, yeah, they used the forceps. Why do you think I look like this? Yeah, they, they, they had to use the forceps. So I, I don't know what impact that might have had on well, me. Well, it, it does, uh, yeah. because my son was also forceps and right. he had a very strange shaped head when he first came out. Yeah. And he had a lot of colic and he had a lot of abdominal pain and he wasn't very settled and he would never sleep during the day. And I took him to see a cranial osteopath and how she explained it to me was that the skull obviously is very um, flexible when you're being born because it has to be to get through the canal. And you have lots of nerves and obviously things that run around the skull and they can become compressed. So if those those particular areas become compressed, you might have uh, secondary problems in a different area that relates to that part of the nervous system. So it can and you have your vagus nerve that runs from your brain to your stomach. And if that is slightly compressed, you know, you may have digestive issues or something like that. So it can make a difference. And um, just if anybody is listening who is due to has got um, a wife or somebody that is due to have a baby soon, cranial osteopathy is amazing. And I would recommend it for all babies. And uh, the osteopath that I saw at the time, she was trying to get into the hospitals to give osteopathy to babies just after they were born um, because she felt that it had made a huge difference. And I totally, totally agreed with her. When she, when she used to do it, my son would go in and his legs would be really tense and curled up to his, his stomach. And it wouldn't look like she was doing anything, just looked like she had her hands behind his head. And then as she was doing it, his legs would just gently relax and he'd always sleep and settle really well after the session. So uh, there is something that you can do about it. And um, and the same with Fontouse delivery as well, because that can do the same thing. And also cesarean, because the baby doesn't go through the moulding of the canal. That's um, fascinating, that. that. That set the old tongues wagging on the website. If you get a chance later on, do go to the comment live and look at all the comments. There's been dozens and dozens and dozens of comments. By the way, you hateful vibe, it's not wife, it's pregnant person. This is the, 
This is the uh, this is the era of political correctness. Men can have babies too, Jenny. Yeah, okay. Don't discriminate. What a load of bollocks that is. Can we can we do a part uh, two of this? Because I've got a list of questions here. We can. Uh, I, like, actually, I'd, I'd made a list of things that I was going to talk about, and I haven't actually really. No, but I won't screw up next time. <laughs> I won't book anybody else in. I'm delighted we had Spiro. I love Spiro. I, I missed him, but he's uh, great. and he's fabulous. But uh, we'll we'll do the, the longer segment um, in, in a couple of weeks, no longer than a couple of weeks, and we'll we'll because there are, there are for, further themes we we could have developed, and I know there are other things you wanted to say, but that was fascinating. And you know what they say? This isn't show business, of course, but in show business, they do say, keep them wanting more. Always leave them on a cliffhanger. Jenny, where, apart from Twitter, which, uh, go and find Jenny on Twitter. It's at one, that's the number one, at one mirror 1978. That gives her age away. Um, no, where no. else Where else can they find you? Online? Uh, I have a website, which is www.genius.life. Um, so they can find me on there as well thanks for doing it today look forward to picking it up again in a couple of weeks do check out the comments not for well for, for a swelled head but there's some brilliant comments there uh, people have been listening very very carefully to what you've been saying Jenny a pleasure thanks for your time I know your time is valuable I appreciate it thank you so much for having me on again and uh, next time I want to talk about diet emotional balance more and maybe stress a bit more as well yes, and, what, and we I- can, what we can do to like undo that and to support ourselves to optimise or to heal Brilliant and you can talk about it as long as you want but I want recipes Jenny I want to hear recipes I want foodstuffs <laughs> and food groups you've got to give you know some answers people will be saying well give me the basics Jenny give me a three course not a three course give me three meals a day give me some ideas because they okay. will be asking that so okay. keep that in mind eh? what yeah. was the website again very quickly genius.life uh, g-e-n-i-u-s um, dot life. Thanks, Jenny. Can't wait for next time. The brilliant nurse, Jenny, you're welcome. Jenny Lowes, who is in Portugal, hugely experienced former NHS nurse in private practice now and is a student of integrative medicine, complementary medicine. Thanks to her. Thanks to the brilliant Spiro Skouras. Thank you, Spiro. Activistpost.com. Find Spiro on YouTube as well. I'm uh, Richie Allen. That was uh, Monday's Richie Allen radio show, produced, edited and introduced by me, your BBG. Take care of yourselves and one another. Until tomorrow, Tuesday at five. Bye. Hey.